This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to say that I'm joined on Football CFB today by one half of Off The Ball, that man is Stuart Cosgrove and I'm absolutely delighted that you can join me Stuart. Thank you very much indeed, looking forward to it. I recently, before we start, I recently had Jim Spence on and I want you to settle an argument, who's more intelligent, you're Jim Spence? Oh there's no, absolutely no question about that, uh, I'm much more intelligent than Spencey, he went to a low rent high school in Dundee and couldn't hack it when it really came to it, when you had to do your PhD and all of those things. So I'm in a different league. But of course, I don't want to patronise the wee man on air. <laughs> when he was on, he was very forthright on his opinions in terms of how he thinks Scottish football should go forward. There's been proposals yeah. for Colt teams to enter Scottish football, a permanent yeah. reconstruction of the top flight to 14 teams with 10 in the other divisions. How do you think it should go in light of this unprecedented situation? Well, you know what? I think if you reverse back and look at the predicament we're in, that predicament is um, you know, not something that any of us have lived through before. Uh, and it's certainly something that's tested almost every um, part of our work, our life, our schooling, the way in which we socialise. And so football inevitably is one area of, of life that has been impacted. Um, I have to say, I don't think that football would necessarily be in my top 10 concerns about the pandemic, but it clearly is um, an important part of um, social life. And it's raised a number of different questions. It's difficult to know whether the questions would have been raised in exactly the same form were the circumstances different because in the Scottish Premiership we had the actually not unique but close to unique circumstances in which Hart and Midlothian, who I would put probably as you know the one of the top four teams in Scotland, uh, found itself uh, at the bottom of the league in the relegation slot when in an unprecedented unprecedented way the SPFL the league had to effectively call the league. And, and decide it on, you know, a points per game arithmetic basis. That left uh, Hart and Midlothian uh, anchored at the bottom in the relegation slot. They've put forward, I think, a very kind of robust argument that this was actually deeply unfair because, um, you know, they'd not played out the whole season. There were still enough games around um, for them to save themselves. And so to some extent, they felt very much that the decision to call the season was the wrong one. However, calling the season released uh, the money that was available to Scottish football from television rights. And that had a very, very big um, and important impact on uh, almost all the clubs and particularly those in the top league. So the point at which they called the league, they could determine that Celtic were the champions, that Rangers were the runners-up that Motherwell and Aberdeen had occupied effectively the European slots, 
and that, curiously enough, St. Johnson had leapfrogged Hibs into the top six by virtue of the fact that we hadn't played as many games as them. Uh, we were actually on our way. Um, most of my friends were on their way to Easter Road, had their tickets already when the season ended and was called. So, in a way, it's been strange for everyone. I think since then, there has been a movement uh, driven not exclusively by Hearts, but particularly uh, by their leadership, to try to find ways to accommodate and address this kind of unique scenario we've found ourselves in. In other words, is there a way of either uh, thinking differently about the season could be how the season could be finished? But of course, if you did that, you can't call the season and therefore can't have the, 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 the prize money. Uh, should it be reconstructed to allow clubs to come up but not go down? Um, and there's been a whole range of different kind of scenarios, many of them long kind of uh, long-running sagas in Scottish football. Of course, we now have what amounts to a pyramid system as well. So the complexities at the top and bottom of every league were quite uh, important. And, and I don't think there was a simple answer. I don't think Mark ever put forward the idea that there's suggestions were simple or were without consequence um, but of course what they were looking to do is to enlarge the top league in order to avoid relegation which would have the consequence of bringing Dundee United up um, and um, Inverness Cali Thistle who were second when the league was called coming up from the championship. Now that's as maybe but if you apply the logic of are people harmed by that or left out by that one of the things that you might turn around to say, well, if it's the case that Hearts might have saved their skins if they've been able to play all their games, Dundee could quite easily have leapfrogged Inverness to go into this second position, which would then have given them um, would have given them promotion to the top league. And if you looked around the leagues, yes, it's the case that the solution that Hearts have proposed also has the benefit of of saving Partick Thistle, who I personally think have been the most hard done by of all of the teams in this scenario. But it would be also naive to suggest that the solution's a perfect one. And of course, there have been many other versions of this suggested on the way. You mentioned the Colts um, scenario. This idea would be um, to bring two Colts teams uh, into the league at a lower level uh, to compete as, as a Colts team with the view to developing, um, you know, young and emergent talent in Scottish football. You don't have to be a genius to work out who the two teams that were being proposed were. Um, and when I thought hard about that, I thought, well, I think the idea of bringing a coach team into a league is something worthy of, of consideration. But I'm, I, I'm an analyst. I'm someone that is obsessed with the kind of, criteria, the scenario, the strategy, what's, what's, what's going on here? What are the objectives? Is the objective to develop young players, first and foremost, or is the objective to maximise crowds at away games on the basis that Celtic and Rangers might bring more fans, or is the objective to attract television to the lower leagues? There's been all sorts of things mooted, but I don't think that anybody has actually audited this. I would love to see an audit end to end of which teams in Scotland, which clubs in Scotland have demonstrated across a 20 year period uh, of the work that they've done for youth development. 
I suspect that might actually throw up all sorts of anomalies. I don't know what the outcome would be. It may well be that it would be Rangers and Celtic, but I suspect that Dundee United would have a, uh, you know, would have a kind of iron in the fire. I suspect that Hamilton and Motherwell would have a dog in the fight. And as you know, and you look across all the teams, and a lot of them have got a very, very good um, track record. Now, my own club, St. Johnson, which probably over a 30-year period doesn't have a particularly good youth development um, track record, but over the last five years has had an exceptionally good one. And if the measurement, is the measurement you develop good players and they become good players and they go somewhere else, or are you developing players to bring them into the first team at your professional club, which Rangers and Celtic have not been that good at doing. Uh, St. Johnson currently have... Stevie Mays, Ander Diamond, um, I could go on, Chris Kane, Ali McCann, Jason Kerr, um, Liam Gordon. That, there's six players or seven players there who are all a product of our youth development system, who are all regularly in our first team and are all part of our uh, squad for, for the new season. So I think everybody has an argument that they could put forward to this. You know, I think there was a period of time when if you looked at Hamilton uh, during the period of time when they had um, players that were going down to Everton and Crystal Palace, they could say they've developed players that have gone on to the English Premiership. You know, so what's the criteria we're using for this? And it seems very much that uh, Rangers' innovation was to their own self-benefit. Well, you can't put forward a scenario that you call innovative for the greater good of Scottish football that actually benefits you and doesn't benefit other teams in the same league as you. So I've got a lot of doubts about whether the Colts thing was genuinely intended to develop or it was fortuitous uh, to the team that proposed it. Well, that is the the, the argument as well and the, the analysis I make of it. Until you propose exactly what it is it's going to do for the greater good of the game I don't think you can make a a judgment on it as as you've said because just saying right we'll put two Colts in to to the league setup you can't do it that quickly it needs to be well thought out another thing I want to ask you about you're a St Johnston fanatic it's very well known how are you feeling about life after Tommy Wright now that question normally you might be able to answer in a different way because in a not in the normal society we were used to, Saints would maybe pick a pick a successor, bring him in and move on. But obviously finances and yeah. situation, we don't know what that's going to look like now. Well, um, first and foremost, my my first thought really is that Tommy Wright uh, delivered me uh, as a fan, as you say, the greatest era in the club's history, both in terms of our Scottish Cup win, our uh, sequence of top six finishes. Our, our trips to Europe. I mean, being a St. Johnson fan in the era of Tommy Wright was a dream come true, something I never really ever thought I would um, witness or participate in. So the first thought I've got about Tommy leaving is what a remarkable job this man has done, and I wish him all the very best, uh, whatever he does in the future, whether he gets the Northern Ireland job or not. Uh, the second thought is, of course, how do you replace Tommy? Here's a man that's achieved all of these things. Very difficult for a small team to get that right twice in a row. Um, so to some extent, you're looking then to continuity. How can we maintain the values that the club has? The values are very straightforward. They're a community club uh, based in Perth, drawing the vast majority of its fan base from the Perthshire area. And they're a club, and this is quite important, 
that believe in cost control, that you have to run a club according to your means. In other words, we don't have huge support. We are unlikely ever to attract uh, massive kind of TV revenues for our games. And so we have to make it work on the basis of what we can afford. And therefore, whoever the manager is, has to sign up to that set of values or there's just no point in them coming. One of the things I really dislike um, about football, and, and, and this was one of, the, one of many re reasons why Steve Lomas, when he came briefly as our manager, then moved on down to Millwall, one of the reasons that the fans never backed him was that soon after he arrived, he started to kind of go against those values. He was saying things like, the club have to open the checkbook. We need more players. We need players at a higher level. We need to break the bank. We need to increase the wage bill. He was saying all of these things, having taken a job on the basis that that was not what the job was, you know. And so, and fans, who I think actually there are uh, within every set of fans, a kind of small 10 or 20% of people who are fantasists. The vast majority of football fans, I think, in Scotland are realists. They really understand how the club works, what they can and can't afford. And St. Johnson's the, the, the great case of that. So whoever the manager is, they have to work to those conditions. The other thing that Tommy Wright and the uh, chair, chairman, Steve Brown, did was they identified uh, a problem that we had what, that was our squad was ageing. And they made a board decision to bring the age of the squad down from, I think, an average age was around 29. And they used the benchmark of 24 to bring the age of the squad down and started to trade on that basis. That had two impacts. Uh, sort of older squad players who'd been great, great contributors to the club's history, Dave Mackay, um, Stephen Anderson, people like that left the club, uh, Midgey Miller, I mean, I could give you a list of about 10 players that who, they, who were uh, in their 30s, left the club to be replaced by a new generation. The new generation, many of whom did actually come from our Colts, including Ali McCann, were only in their 20s. So uh, before he left us, Tommy turned over another magic trick, which is to transform the squad age. And as a consequence of that, we managed there with a a blue and white St. Johnson tent. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, anyway, he, you know, he, he did that for us and then, then he left. But what then happened was the uh, management team and the people who are effectively continuing to take the training, uh, including Alec Cleland uh, and others at the club, also began to put into effect contracts that would see us beyond the pandemic. Uh, and that means that we've got a very, very decent first-team squad, many of whom are young, many of whom have been at the club for four or five years, and whoever the manager that comes in is, they're coming into a near-perfect scenario where um, they've got a squad that's already in place. They're not going to have the scrabble about in the loan market. And I think there'll maybe be two or three players will come in from that kind of area, maybe a, a couple of loan signings or maybe a, a, you know, another purchase from the championship. We've, we've taken two players from Inverness, Cali Thistle, Sean Rooney and, um, and Jamie McCart. And they, again, are young men that have fitted in. Uh, and the best thing that I can ever say about Tommy Wright, it sounds like a really boring thing to say, but Tommy Wright always found a round hole, a round peg for a round hole. 
he, or a square peg for a square hole. He never went out saying, oh, I just need to buy players, get me a few players. He was always buying for a very clear reason. We need a left wing back with pace. We need a right back who can defend first and foremost. He always knew what he was looking for. And in lots of ways, I think that led to him being a very, very, very good manager for the club he was at. You mentioned earlier on about the finances of our game. As a fan of St Johnston, how proud are you that the club are prudent when it comes to their finances, but also successful? And, and in a way, you could argue punch above their weight based on their budget. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think no question and great that they do. I mean, I, you, you know this if you've listened to Off the Ball and the rants that I get, uh, get into. I have a long, long, deep disrespect for the way in which uh, clubs have overspent and had to kind of then dig themselves out of the mess they were in or have kind of sugar daddies being flown in from Lord knows where. And, you know, we can list them. We know who they are. You know, there's Livingston, there's Dundee, there's Rangers, there's Motherwell, there's Hearts. All of these clubs have gone bust, right? Either into administration or in Rangers' case, liquidation. And um, they've, they've actually ended up spending more than they ever had. That's at the core of what their problem was. Let's not, you can go on about, oh, well, actually, it was Vladimir Romanov's daft ideas. No, it was the hearts of too big a squad and they were being paid too much money. And when the banks crashed and his bank crashed, the whole thing went tits up. Rangers had too many players, some of them on, uh, some of them on, on questionable contracts, who when the bank called in debt, the Royal Bank of, sorry, the Bank of Scotland called in their debt, they couldn't service the rest of their, their obligations, whether that was to the tax person or to their own players, and they went bust. And I could go through every one of them, and every single team that's gone into administration or gone bust in Scotland is because they were paying more than they could afford to players. Therefore, as a consequence of that, here's the answer, don't pay as much for players. Therefore, don't get distracted by guys who are coming up from England with fantasy wages. You know, don't get caught up in the international global transfer market because you can get somebody that's got a really, really sexy name and the fans are going to think, oh, he's Brazilian, he'll be good. All of this sort of shit that's been going on in Scottish football for far too long. You know what? What have you got? What comes in through the gate? What comes in through your tele revenue? What are you selling pies and, and, and you know, rubbers and pencils and pens in you know, shirts and scarves? Put that to one side. That's your income. What are your outgoings? And if your outgoings are bigger than your income, you're teetering towards administration. And that's, that's why, in terms of you talked about your rants and off the ball, it's that realism that I appreciate as a fan of football because... You know what it's like. I think we live in a sort of, for want of a better phrase, a yellow tie culture. We look down yeah. south, we see the transfer window down there, we see players going for ridiculous amounts of money. Most fans up here, as you've rightly said, realise we can't afford that, we can't do it. But you have got a 10 or 20% who think we need to break the bank, break the bank. And as you've said, yeah. the examples are there to be seen. It does not work in Scotland unless no, you potentially... Yeah, I think, I think there's a, another kind of interesting thing as well, is if you're a hardcore fan, what is more exciting? Is it more exciting to be told one day in the newspaper, you know, your club are signing a Spanish internationalist who used to play for Real Madrid, 
And you hear all of these things, you read them in the record of the sun almost every week, and you're thinking, yeah. Or is it that a young player who's come through your system is in your first team playing out of their skin and is a great, great discovery? We've got Ali McCann, our central midfield player, and I tell you what, I take more pleasure out of seeing Ali McCann's progress than I would out of us signing an ex-Real Madrid first-team player. Really, I genuinely would. And if I look at other teams, I look over at, say, Motherwell, and if you... Hi, Jack, how are you? Uh, I, I, look at, um, I look at Motherwell, and I think, ultimately, who brought you the greatest emotional experience? Was it James McFadden and that superb goal he scored for Scotland in Paris? As a Motherwell player, or I think he may have gone to Everton by that time, but it was a James McFadden goal, or is it someone that you brought up on loan from Hartlepool? I mean, please, you know, there's no comparison. And I think and one big, big thing in Scottish football is fans love seeing guys that have come through their team break into the first team and... Um, and take it from there. We've got four young guys at St. Johnson. I'm really excited to see their future. Whether they make it or not, I don't know, but I'm really, really excited to see them make it, and that'll do for me for excitement. In terms of Saints, what's it like when you look back through the years, going from the old Burton days to McDermott, and then, of course, that incredible Scottish Cup victory over Dundee United? Well, there's so many different emotions there and, and kind of emotions of both up and down. Uh, I mean, I think the area in uh, St. Johnson's history, I, I had um, somebody up there loves me because I was a teenager when they had their great team under Willie Ormond, uh, Henry Hall, John Connolly, Kenny Ayer, Freddie Aitken. I mean, it was a phenomenally gifted uh, attacking team and they were the match of Celtic and Rangers and Aberdeen at the time and with great, great, um, uh, achievements with that club, not least uh, our first European venture where we beat SV Hamburg and knocked them out of the European UEFA Cup. Um, so all, all of these things... Hold on a second. You okay, Jack? Yeah, yeah, all right, yeah. He's bringing the tent inside. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that kind of uh, experience was when I was a teenager and what a time to grow up. By the time I'd gone to university and moved to my first jobs down in London, um, the club had gone into a very, very deep depression. And they ended up being relegated right down to the bottom place in Scottish football. They were, for a period of time, the least successful team in Britain. Now, I was living in London at the time, and I would go to this department store to watch the teletext for the results coming up. And I just stood in disbelief as we were getting hammered by Stenhouse, Muir, Cowdenbeath, Clyde, you know, Forfer, getting beat and dropping down the leagues. And something had to change. And going back to our, um, going back to our kind of theory earlier on about money, uh, Jack, I'm just doing this interview. I'll be with you in two minutes, okay? Are you stuck? No. He's taking a tent that he's got wrapped around his head into the front room. <laughs> um, and so the outcome of that was that um, we probably needed new ownership. The, the guys that were in charge of the club at the time were your classic old, sort of, um, old school butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Um, and uh, Jeff Brown, who at the time was uh, overseeing uh, a team, very, very good uh, youth development team, 
Colts team, you might call them now, called Errol Rovers. Um, and my cousin Russ uh, Cosgrove played for Errol Rovers alongside uh, Ian Redford and a number of other players that went uh, professional. And uh, I think Jeff started to get the real buzz for managing teams and for overseeing teams and seeing how far he could take them. And he went out on a walk one night and said to his wife, I've got an idea, I think I want to take over Saints. And that was the beginning of a very different journey. Uh, we went on what ended up being a remarkable journey because um, we effectively left our, our old ground, Newton Park, which had been our second ground after the recreation grounds where we first played. And in this second move, um, we managed to strike a, a, a deal, which is fortuitous for us, with Asda, where they would buy the ground of Newton and provide and build a stadium in ground um, to the northeast of the city, um, which was on old farmland owned by a St. Johnston fan called Mr. McDermott. And Mr. McDermott effectively bequeathed the land in trust to St. Johnston and Asda built the infrastructure. So we started this new season, a new stadium. The first, it was in the back of the Taylor Report, the first all-purpose-built all-seater stadium in Britain. And it felt very modern for a team that actually had associations with being maybe a bit old-fashioned, a bit kind of out of the way, not the greatest club in the world. Uh, so the opening nights at that, despite the fact that the floodlights failed in for 10 minutes, we played Man United, good game, good team, packed out 11,000, 12,000 coming to the game. And for the whole of that season, I think as part out of kind of interest and uniqueness and because there was a lot of people coming just to tick it off their list of places they've been. We got great crowds, 5,000, 7,000, which for us is huge crowds. But the average St. Johnson support, if you look at it factored over uh, the last 20 years, is, is about 3,000. It's, it's roughly about that. Uh, it's not to say it hasn't been higher. It's not to say it hasn't been lower. But 3,000 is about the support that we generate. And, and I can't see when, when it'll ever go bigger than that and therefore I get quite defensive about people that say things like um, oh well you know these diddy teams what do they bring to the game and they usually say after you've just beaten them and you think well well tell you there's a thing we've beaten you we've beaten you we brought that to the game you know <laughs> and, and I've heard a lot of people I've heard this quite a lot oh we don't want to lose the Dundee derbies oh we don't want to lose the Hibs Hearts derbies we don't want them to go down you think well there's the absolute relevance for you relegate those teams whose derbies you would miss you wouldn't miss you know and that is Hamilton St Johnson Ross County just get rid of them who cares they don't have big crowds there are actually people who think that and the great thing is there are people who think that, who support teams that you regularly pump, you know? And you think, well, fair enough, go and keep thinking about it. But a game of football is a game between 22 people and your objective is to put the ball in their net. Their objective is to put the ball in your net. And by the way, this team, St. Johnson, are quite good at doing it. Sometimes a lot better than you. So I don't buy the idea that you should organise the leagues around the size of crowds at games. Absolutely, completely agree. And in terms of Livingston, they're another club who get pigeonholed yeah. into that argument of, oh, their pitch isn't very good, they don't get big crowds, but they've added a lot to the league since they've, since they've come into it, as have the likes of Saints and Hamilton over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, the, the, the thing that, um, 
the thing that people say, oh, you know, their, their pitch should be banned, you think, were that true, Livingston would never get a point away from home, but they frequently and regularly do get points away from home. So it can't just be their pitch that's the divider between their success. Their success is, in part, I think they've got a great manager in Gary Holt. I think they've built a really, really talented and at times very physical team that are capable of taking on any of the bumps and scrapes of um, Scottish um, Premiership football. So good luck to Livy. They're there on merit and merit alone. Absolutely. And in terms of May 17, um, a date that I, I, I'm sure every year just gives you the, the biggest sense of pride. Beating Dundee United must have been good, but also beating Jim Spence as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Jim and I go back a very, very, very long way. Um, Jim and I have known each other since we were 14-year-old, maybe 15-year-old. So we've kind of known each other a very, very long time. And we've got many, many similar uh, beliefs. And he's a great character, a phenomenal uh, asset to Scottish football. Um, but, of course, you know, when you grow up in Perth, um, and one of the reasons I know... Uh, Jim, is that the school he went to in Lost Side in Dundee was a senior Catholic, senior secondary Catholic school in, in Dundee. For a period in my upbringing, it was also the school that you went to from Perth, you know? So, because Perth at that time didn't have a senior secondary Catholic school in the junior secondary school called St. Columbus. But if you were in a senior secondary stream, you know, if you'd done well in your exams at primary school, you travelled in this long-distance kind of train to Dundee, uh, and then you went on a bus up to Lost Side, and you ended up sitting next to Jim Spence. Well, <laughs> I, I had two or three friends that were put under that pain by their parents. Fortunately, my mum said, look, I can cope with you going to a Protestant school in Perth. So I went to Perth Academy, but because my mates knew Jim Spence, I ended up befriending him as well, and we'd go clubbing and, in those days, discos and things like that together. So I've known Jim for a long, long time. Uh, and to be honest, um, he has such a soft spot for St. Johnston that I know that there was a wee bit of him on that day kind of wanted us to win. I think he was the, the Dundee United fan that was most relaxed about what the, the outcome would be. He'd also by then befriended Tommy Wright, who was much closer to them than I ever have been. And he knows, um, uh, he knows, um, uh, he knows uh, the Brown family fairly well as well. So, so he had a lot of close connections to the club and that was his uh, patch when he was a BBC journalist. So he, he, I think on that day, he, he wanted Dundee United to win, but if they were going to lose, he would have rather lost to St Johnston than any other team in the world. Um, it, it was just a glorious day. One, I mean, one of the greatest uh, days of my life. And it'll never go away, the memories, the thoughts. The, I can see things now. I mean, even now, there are things that I know. I, I could watch those goals, particularly the winning goal, the Stephen McLean goal. I could watch that every 20 minutes for the rest of my life, you know. And I'd always see something different in the goal. There's a moment, actually, if you watch the goal, there's a wonderful moment where he, he, he gets the ball in the break, Cherniak's down, he puts the ball past him, and he runs towards a, a group of St. Johnson fans. He takes his top off and he's waving his tops. He's already on a booking, and he jumps over the two hoardings, jumps effectively into the crowd, and he's being hugged by these guys. Now, if you know St. Johnson, 
Two or three of them are members of what are called the Peebles Saints. They're from Peebles and the Borders, and there's St. Johnson, Perth guys that live down there, families and that. And that's where Stephen McLean himself lives. So they were the group of people that would often take him up to Perth for games, travel back to him after Wednesday night games. If he was, if we were away, say, at Aberdeen, he would get the car back with them rather than be dropped off in Perth and have to find a way home. And so he knew these guys really, really well. And he said to me, uh, some weeks after it, he says, there's a bit where I'm hugging one of the people's saints. And he says, all I can smell off him is beer. And he said, I just wanted a beer. More than anything, I wanted Tommy to sub me and for me to sit and watch the rest of the game with a bottle of Heineken. And, and every time I look for that moment, I look for the guy that's reeking a beer. And you, know, and you only do that if you know the people and you know the crowd and you know, and you know the, the circumstances. So no, I could watch that, the game, but I could particularly watch the goals for the rest of my life and be very happy. In terms of Saints winning the Cup, what was it like for you also being involved in the, the celebrations afterwards with the, the, the presentation in Perth? Yeah, um, the council had asked me, because I'm a Perth boy, the council had asked me to come and do and host the uh, returning. So in a way, I was down at what was called the concert hall where they put up a stage and the bus was coming from McDermott Park through the various uh, different schemes, including the place that I grew up. Uh, in Latham and they would go around all the main roads and I think the expectation would be that we'd get about five or six thousand our core support plus a few others but in the end it was 22,000 in the town and the bus uh, took off through the town and it just was delayed and delayed and I was getting little kind of calls from the stage manager saying oh the bus now is at the Fuse Road it will be with us in 10 minutes. I'm thinking, God, it will know. It will be another 20 minutes, you know. So I was going out entertaining the crowd, starting the singing again, doing all sorts of kind of crap material and everything. And the crowd were, of course, getting more and more buoyant. And then when the bus appeared, it was just pandemonium. I mean, it's just one of the greatest experiences seeing them. Now, just to give you a perspective there, a really good friend of mine who had moved to America when he was... Um, a young man in his 20s had moved to San Francisco where he works in the uh, in the wine industry in, in San Francisco. Big, big Saints fan. I'd gone all the away games with him. We used to write all the terrace and songs together. And he, he came back for the event and stayed over with me and stayed for the uh, return of the cup. And I remember us saying to each other that we could never imagine this ever happening. We had no idea that this was ever going to come about. And, you know, a lot of people will say to me things like, um, oh, where are all your 17,000 fans that went to the cup final now? And you think, well, one of them's in San Francisco, eight of them are in Sydney, uh, two of them are in, you know, Dunedin, you know. They all came back because they've either got a love for the club or they're Perth guys or they've got some kind of um, emotional attachment. You can't expect those people to turn up every week to watch you playing Ross County at home. You know, it's just unreasonable, that. And so the fact that we've got 3,000 fans, I'll stick with that. And if we ever get to another cup final, I'll be pissed off if we can't do 15,000, you know. <laughs> In terms of yourself being, a, being St. Johnston through and through, working on off the ball means that you miss the Saturday games. What's that? Well, not all of them, of course. You can get to Paisley and, and the surrounding areas. But in terms of those home games in Perth, 
what's it like? Because I know you still have a season ticket despite the fact you can't go to all the games. Yeah, I, I do. I've, in fact, actually, I just got uh, a renewal um, through today where I'd, I'd made a contribution yesterday in lieu of my season ticket to our youth development fund, but uh, the season ticket renewals come through, so I'll renew that probably to tomorrow. Um, but yeah, that's just the way it is. But, you know, here's an interesting thing. Um, in the BBC, because they stream in the games for the highlight show, Sports Scene, uh, with, you know, Stephen Thompson and, and uh, Michael Stewart, uh, Jonathan Sutherland, they need to have edited highlights of all the games. So their TV deal allows the games to come into the BBC live and then for them to be edited in order to go out and the edited show the next day. So what I do is when I can't actually make it to, as you say, St. Murren, Motherwell, Hamilton, Rangers and Celtic, I go to all of those games. What I do is I go into this little engineering room at the BBC and they give me an obscure number. And on that obscure number, when you type it in in this machine, McDermott Park opens up and you get the game live. So I've never missed a single game uh, due to off the ball in, in years. In an actual fact, further more than that, I actually watch the game with a different mindset because you're watching it, you're seeing replays, you're seeing uh, cutaways and, and, and shots to the crowd and everything. So I kind of watch it with a real, but you still get excited. I mean, we... We had a game, I can't remember, I think it was actually, it was against Ross County, and we scored late. And I remember being in this uh, little box going, yes! And I was jumping up, thinking I'm going to batter my head off the, the, the roof here. But I, I'm so committed to them. I would go just about anywhere. I actually, you know, there's a weird thing, this. I've got our, um, our B team, our youth development team calendar. It's not, not been done yet since the pandemic, but for last season, and I would sit down and I'd say, right, it's a Tuesday night. We're playing Partick Thistle at such and such a place. And I'd go with one of my mates and we'd go and stand and watch the, 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 the young boys um, playing their game. And I think that if you believe in a team, I, I, I sponsor also the women's team. I think if you believe in a club, then I think you need to engage with a club at every level and not imagine that it's all only ever to do with the, the first team, you know. So that's one of my kind of commitments is going to as many youth games as I can. Um, I'm also uh, I'm an ambassador and contribute to our uh, well-being programme. This is for, you know, people that have had kind of mental health problems, depression, uh, people that have got uh, disabilities and St. Johnson are absolutely brilliant at things like that. And uh, actually, I'm as proud as that as I am of us winning cups. Brilliant. And, and in terms of off the ball, obviously we know the big anniversary, 25 years, was um, last year. Um, Tam is always telling us that you've only been there for 24, he's been there for 25. What's it like working with Tam? Hey, let, let's, go, let's go back to that. He was there and it was shite. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Tam's a character. There's no question about that. And one, one of the things, I've got two things to say about Tam. Um, one of which is that he is one of the fastest wits that you can ever get. He'll always have a comeback, no matter what the subject is. Tam will always have either a joke or a comeback on a joke against him. And he's one of the fastest guys you could ever imagine. 
but, and this is a really important but, Tam Cowan works hard at being fast, right? You know how you get these people at football where they say things like, oh, he was a great trainer. He would go back, he used to say about um, Paolo Di Canio at Celtic, he would go back in the afternoon and just simply work on set pieces, right foot, left foot, chipping the ball, top corner, and he would just play and play with two or three uh, youth development kids doing that. There's, although Tam Cowan is not Paolo Di Canio, he has one of Paolo's instincts, is that he will work hard to get a joke, you know. So a lot of his jokes appear to be off the cuff, but in fact, he's worked on them for hours, for days. He's kept things in his mind, and he has this kind of little grid that he has. So, for example, let's imagine it was Valentine's Day, you know, February, the, you know, in February. He'll have Valentine's, he'll have then you know, love letters, love hearts. He'll have all of these things in his mind. Then he'll start looking at people that have been in the news. And uh, immediately he's turning around and he'll say, oh, I hear Neil Doncaster got a Valentine's card from blah, 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 blah. And there's a joke at the end of it. But it's probably a joke that he's used 17 times in the past. But by making it about Neil Doncaster, on that day, it feels original, it feels new. So Tam works really, really hard at being funny. Um, I think he's naturally a funny man, but he works very, very hard at making uh, humor feel natural. And so uh, I respect him for that, otherwise he's a fucking dick. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that always interests me, um, you know, you probably had this question a hundred times from people that meet your time and say, oh, you must be best pals and always hang about together. But you've, you've both went on record as saying that your, your catch-up normally takes place before the show in the canteen. Yeah, that's right. That's where we meet. I mean, we're not, um, you know, we're at the case that there was a, a bar open tonight and he gave me a ring and said, oh, I, I want to talk to you about something fancy meeting up for a beer. We'd go and do it. But we don't have regular catch-ups. We don't, you know, we don't have a social world together. And so our catch-ups are, are before the show. I think that we also know instinctively what the other one is thinking uh, about many, many subjects. And we've worked together long enough to understand where our strengths and weaknesses are. But no, we're not people that kind of spend a lot of time in each other's company. And that's one of the kind of frustrating things. I mean, I, I go along the road here and I live in the east side of Glasgow and I walk along to the uh, local, to the co-op, our local um, supermarket at the end of the road. And, and every day I'll pass somebody who'll say, hey, Stuart, where's Tam? And you're thinking, I haven't a clue. It's eight in the morning and I'm going to do my shopping. He's probably at home sleeping with his mum or something. I don't know. I have no idea. And I think there's an element of that that Tam gets as well, which is where's your big pal and, you know, all of that, you know. Um, but, uh, no, we don't have a lot of kind of time where we're, um, where we're socialising with each other, but we are very sociable people when we meet, you know. One of the things as well about off the ball that, that I think deserves immense credit, and I know you and Tam laugh and, and don't, and it's sort of self-depreciation at yourselves in the show, yeah. but... Yeah. Not many shows would last 25 years, especially in the current climate, because you know how much society's changed and shows are constantly adapting. What do you think's kept off the ball fresh? Because I would argue now it's, it's better, it's arguably it's better than it's ever been. And there's so many people that are listening and there's so many new listeners constantly coming in as well. Yeah. 
Well, I think one of the things is it stays abreast of its core subject, which is Scottish football. We're both football fans, you know, and so you could chuck Tam and I into any company. Um, well, here's the thing. If you take something like Sports Sound, right, the more conventional TV coverage of that, Tam and I could do Sports Sound, but most of the Sports Sound presenters couldn't do off the ball, right? And, and that's not not to... That's not to kind of big up Tam or I, but rather to make a point that there are some people that are comfortable with analytical football journalism, analysing the game, the stats, the, the shape, the, the, the politics of it. Um, Tam and I can find delight and humour in all of that. And we stay in touch with Scottish football on a kind of hourly and daily basis. Um, so, for example, um, if you take something like... Um, Livingston, or we talked earlier about Hearts and Dundee, we'll know enough about what's going on at those clubs to be able to hold a, an intelligent conversation, but we'll know enough about the history of those clubs to have a wee go at them and a laugh and, a, and, and prick their pomposity or do whatever. So I think that's one of the reasons. I think the other reason is that the show is really about Scotland. It's about Scottish people, it's about how Scotland is as a society. And the more that Scotland thrives and survives and grows and develops, so the show develops with it. So it's been one of those where um, I'm really proud of it, actually, because I think it's, uh, it's not easy to keep a show going for that period of time. And I can't see the circumstances um, when we will be immediately taken off air because it's the most successful show on Radio Scotland. I'm praying that there isn't a video of Tam doing black and white minstrel shows somewhere and we get taken <laughs> off because Black Lives Matter turn up at the studio and say, get empty, fuck. <laughs> the one thing that also makes me laugh, and, and, and I'm interested to know if you actually still get it, because as I say, society's kind of changed to me, but one of the things you get on the show is who does Willie Collum really support? Or who does Pamela Anderson really yeah. support? Whoever's in the news yeah. that week. Do people still come up to you and go, oh, Cosgrove, who do you really support? You're not really a St. Johnson fan. Yeah, I, I, had a guy, I had a guy the other day that wouldn't he go away. It was at a play park up in the East End. I'd taken a wee man out for a walk in his kind of uh, walk. And this guy says, oh, big man. I'll listen to you on the radio. How are you doing? I said, right. And, he said, and they start off, he said, this guy started off with, ah, who, who, who is it you support again? Is it Dundee United? And you think, you've listened for 20 odd years and you don't know who I support? What the fuck? Right? So this guy immediately then says, I bet, and I said, well, St. Johnson, ah, St. Johnson, that's right. I, I bet, bet, bet of Celtic and Rangers, where, how do you lean? And he was desperately trying to get me to answer the question. And, and of course, I, I have endless answers to that because I've been, you know, um, asked it a thousand times, you know. And um, I'll say things like, well, you know, I remember that we hammered Celtic uh, at Celtic Park and Danny Swanson scored a 30-yard wonder goal. Did I get more pleasure out of that than the night we turned Rangers over 4-1 up in Perth? Do you know what? It's quite a difficult one. And I always just leave them bewildered by what the fuck I'm talking about. But the thing about it is, you feel like turning around and saying, I can find things to like about those two clubs, but I can find an awful lot of things to dislike about them. So don't put me in the position of having to choose between them because I don't support either of them, you know. 
And a lot of people will turn around and say, you must think this, you must think that. Well, look, here's a thing. Um, if, for example, um, Rangers are playing and they're currently the weaker of the two teams, which they have been in recent years in terms of their spending power, the quality of their players, you're sitting for uh, a cup semi-final draw coming out of the hat, you're wanting Rangers because they're easier to beat than Celtic. That's a matter of fact, right? So there's, there's all of those things that play off in your mind when you support a, a smaller team. How do we, you know, we got to the cup final because Dundee United took out Rangers and Aberdeen took out Celtic and then we took out the two of them and win the cup. That's the way, that's the chance. But you have to turn around and say, Alec Ferguson says you win nothing unless you win in Glasgow. And he's absolutely right about that. So if it's Celtic or Rangers, well, who's the weakest? And we'll take them, please. Absolutely. And in terms of, of, of the show and working with Tam, I always worry when I get attached to a show because every show eventually comes to an end. And I always just think, please tell me there's no plans for that anytime soon. Well, not, not, not in my uh, lifetime um, uh, and not sort of in my uh, mind. I'm hoping that it actually keeps going for as long as it can. Um, I mean, inevitably, something comes to an end at some stage. But I suspect it will actually come to an end circumstantially rather than because, you know, we want it to come to an end. Now, what might happen? Well, you might imagine that the rise and rise and rise of streaming means that there are more streamed games in the world and less interest in, in talk radio. That, that's happening. A lot more people are interested in Netflix than in what BBC Scotland say. So you could see a scenario where the international global media changes to an effect that impacts on off the ball. Or it could be that one of us keels over because of a long-standing you know, uh, uh, thrombosis or something like that. But there's no sign of that happening soon. Tam and I are both pretty healthy for fat guys, you know. <laughs> See, when you talk about streaming and the rise of, of new media, have, have you and Tam been approached or the BBC Scotland approached and said, right, we want to nab Stuart and Tam and take them and do something else with them? Uh, we've been approached, in fact, only last week. We were working on... Uh, a development project for Off The Ball TV, which we, we were very skeptical about. So we were very keen to make it work according to the way that we wanted to work. And we've been working away on how we could do that. And I think we've got a way through it. Uh, but it was at the time where uh, the pandemic had just come in and TV stations were just desperate to do anything. And I, I have a very long professional track record in television and I know how it works. And I was pretty cautious saying to Tam, let's not run to do anything that looks like Zoom TV, that doesn't quite work, that doesn't have the kind of, the sensibilities of off the ball. Let's plan something longer and let's do a couple of pilots. And if we like them, we'll, we'll press the button and say yes, but we're not gonna do it just because there's no football, you know. Um, so we'll see, I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, but at present, um, that's on hold. Guess why? Because I think the championship and the premiership are coming back sometime soon, you know. Um, so, of course, they would rather have shows uh, talking about whether, um, you know, uh, whether they would rather have shows talking about whether St. Murn's defence is up to it rather than off the ball does, you know. 
And that's the thing it's, it's, it interests me because the reason I wanted to ask that question is I came to the, the fundraising event that you hosted for your son's school yeah. last year. Um, it's at Luke's and I thought, I just loved the fact that you and Tam were there. It was live. Um, it was uncensored in many ways, which yeah. some people would yeah. argue off the ball as as well. Um, yeah. and, and I just think, I just think as, as with the BBC Scotland channel and other media and other mediums there, I think there's definitely room for some more as well. Oh, I, I, I definitely, and I think as the channel, the BBC Scotland standalone channel, as it evolves, it's going to have to start to say, well, we're under pressure now to get bigger audiences than they currently are getting, and one of the kind of one of the kind of jewels in their crown for now in the BBC uh, content is off the ball. So there's a kind of inevitability about it, but I will only do it if we can control the show to such an extent that the two of us know what the show's about, you know. And if we don't know what the show's about, and if it's just trying to make radio and television, that'd probably be the wrong thing. Very honest of you, and, and, and I'm conscious of your time, so I want to ask you a few quick-fire questions before I let you go. Um, who would you say have been your, your favourite St Johnston players to watch over the years? I know that's, that's quite hard because you've, you've seen so many great moments. Yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, almost uh, it would need to be a kind of top ten. But I'm going to I'm going to single out one guy, and I'm going to do it for personal reasons. I I've got huge personal respect for um, for David Witherspoon, who's currently in our uh, our current squad and played in our cup final. He's a phenomenally gifted ball player, and I think could have hacked at just about any level in any country because he has the basic absolutely brilliant kind of control of the ball and maybe could maybe now have an extra kind of yard of pace but sometimes the great players are like that and David is has been a phenomenal servant to St Johnson. Uh, during our big runs going to Europe and being at McDermott and that he was a season ticket holder himself for I mean literally years and his brother uh, sorry his brother his father Ian um, the original Spoonie uh, is also a big St. Johnson fan who I see at the games. And because I know that the family are part of the core values of the club, and this guy's an exceptionally gifted player, I really, really like seeing him. I was doing a, I was doing a podcast for uh, a, a guy down in England, and I, I, I turned on the kind of debate about, there's a lot of people in England that say, oh, Scotland, it's a pub league, my nan could play it, and all, all that old guff. And I turned on that um, attitude and said to him, I'm choosing as one of my goals a goal from a friendly. And it's a goal David Witherspoon scored against Sunderland in a pre-season friendly um, at Perth. And St. Johnson won the game 3-0. And the final goal, I think Witherspoon got two, but his last goal, the third goal of the game, he starts the move, he gets the ball back, and then he weaves through uh, the Sunderland defence, a bit like Maradona against England. It's one of these moves. And he ends up, the whole defence, take the dummies and all the rest of it, and he ends up one-on-one -on -one with the Sunderland keeper and does his final kind of faint and dummy. And the Sunderland keeper falls on his arse and he slots the ball into the net. And you just think, yes, I like it. And so I, I would single uh, David out because of respect. He's a now a Canadian internationalist, uh, having kind of been a Scotland under-21 internationalist and having also played for uh, Celtic and Hibernians 
Colts teams, youth team. But when he came to St. Johnson, he was coming home. And it's just lovely to see that story being played out. So I'm going to go for David Witherspoon. He's not one of the all-time greats, but he's the guy that's delivered when his club asked for it. Completely unrelated. I want you to imagine you and your you and Tam are at your peak of physical fitness. You may argue that's you now. <laughs> um, who would win a 50-50 challenge? Uh, what, in running or fighting? Uh, football. 50-50. Who, well, who football. wins the ball? Sorry, football. Uh, you know what? I think probably... I think I've probably got slightly more balls, ball skill, but I think Tam's quite a determined player, and I suspect he would have been a good traditional wing-back of the old school. Um, so if it was a 50-50 ball and we were going, both going for it, I would have my diary out working what I was doing the next week. And if I thought I was going to end up in hospital, I'd shuck the tackle because I'd rather make money than win a tackle against Tam Cowan. <laughs> um, an interesting question for you is Scottish football has seen lots of great players over the years if you could have chosen one in your lifetime that you've watched to have played for Saints that hasn't who would it have been? Well strange that you should say that I could actually um, take you right back to the minutes of a board meeting of St Johnson FC I think in the year 1958-59 season and there's an entry to this day in the minutes of our uh, board meeting, which is, and it just says, St. Johnson Football Club have been offered the services of a homesick Leeds United player, William Bremner. He is not of the standard that we are looking for. And so they didn't take Billy Bremner back. He was down there homesick for Stirling. And, you know, I mean, given that he was one of the greatest uh, Scotland players of his era and he came so close to playing for St. Johnson, I would probably say Billy Bremner. But if uh, it was to do with who would you want from the modern game, I think actually, you know, I've thought hard about this and I've seen a lot of, of his good goals playing for Scotland. I really like Sean Maloney. I mean, he scored some great goals for, for Scotland. Um, so, you know, I could answer that a hundred times, but I'm going to go Billy Bremner. Brilliant. And, and, yeah. and I have to say, Stuart, I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, obviously, yeah. everyone's aware of Off the Ball. Check it out if you haven't, but I'd be amazed if you haven't. And obviously, your, your Northern Soul books as well, very highly regarded. Where can people buy those? Oh, they can get them uh, in the usual places. All great independent bookshops, but if you're really struggling, there's a thing called Amazon. And they float down this river and they come to your house. <laughs> Brilliant, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Good to see you. All the best. Thank you as well. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song